I'm in the humbling position to know many of you need truths like which we just sang in that last song to know that God is your strong tower, our ever-present help in time of need. I I, I realize that uh, many of you need a reminder of that often. Um, There are a lot of things going on in our world, and they affect even us as Christians. We do not live in a vacuum, right? And uh, it impacts your life. From the economy, to having children, to marriages, to family and friends, um, you are challenged. And to know that God is that ever-present, ever that, that strong tower that we can run into is, is needed. It's needed. Um, one of the most famous movies of all time arguably one of the best movies of all time, was uh, It's a Wonderful Life. If you haven't seen this movie, uh, you lived in Russia somewhere for the last 40 years. Um, we've all seen it. You remember, remember old Clarence the Angel? Funny dude, huh? Clarence the Angel comes down, and he, um, he's going to visit old George Bailey. And uh, George is in a hard spot. You remember this? George is in a tough spot. The world is falling in around him. And uh, he doesn't know what to do. You remember George finds himself on an icy, wintry night, standing on a bridge all alone by himself, he thinks. But old Clarence is watching from a short distance away. And he realizes that George is going to jump in and take his own life and just end it all, be done with the ever-present pain that is his life. And... uh, he did. He does. He jumps in, and then right after him comes old Clarence, right? Old dumpy angel jumps in the water after him, drags him out, and then you got the bridge operator there, and they're all sitting there in the uh, the bridge operator's office there on the bridge, and they're huddled around the little stove and trying to get warm, and George has got this blanket draped around him, and the angel's drying off his pajamas and hanging them on the line there, and uh, George says, you know, who in the world are you? And Clarence says, well, I'm Clarence. I'm your guardian angel. As if George should have known this all along. Guardian, guardian angel. He said, yeah, God, God sent me here to help you. And uh, you remember George Bailey's response? He said, well, you got 1,500 bucks. And uh, Clarence kind of just chuckles. He says, no, no, no. We don't, we don't deal with those kind of things where I come from. And uh, George's response is classic. You remember what he said? He said, well, they sure do come in handy down here, bub. We don't use bub enough, Preston. We need to start using bub all the time. That's how we feel, though, sometimes, right? God doesn't feel like this ever-present God. He feels like a God who is afar off. Last week, as Paul took us through chapter 3, that Christ was his hope, past, present, and future, he showed us from his salvation, his only hope was in Christ, his sanctification, him getting better, getting closer to holiness, that holiness that God has called him to, that his sanctification process, his only hope for that was in Christ. He ended up chapter 3 by telling us that his glorification, the only hope for his glorification was in Christ. Do you remember this? Philippians chapter 3, the last couple of verses, for our citizenship is in 
heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for our Savior, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble or vile state. He's going to take us out of this mess. Okay? And Paul looks forward to this great day. And then I think when he gets to chapter 4, verse 1, he realizes, you know what? Until we get there, uh, we got to get through our vile estate. We got to deal with the pain that we're in. You got 1,500 bucks with you, Clarence? No. It sure does come in handy down here. That's how we feel sometimes. We need, we need God here. We need God now. In chapter 4, that's, that's essentially what he's going to tell us. We're building our skeleton. We're going chapter by chapter. And the last piece of our broad picture skeleton here is chapter 4 that Paul's going to tell us. That in a number of ways, and you're going to see, you'll be able to count the different ways. Paul's going to jump around here. He's going to do a, an excellent job of covering numerous ways that Christ is his peace. Christ can be our peace. How are we going to make it through now, the here and now, the issues of the day? He says, well, we go back to Christ. He's not just my life. He's not just my example of humility. He's not just my hope for the past, the present, and this one day which seems a far off future. But he, he's here for me now, and he provides a peace in the meantime. So let's see what he has to say here. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see my joy and my crown. That's the heart of a pastor for his people. That's the heart of Paul for his People, look what he says here to end verse 1. In this way, and he's going to explain this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. That's his heart. Paul's heart is that he has a responsibility for these people. Paul is here on earth. Do you remember why he's here? For you, you, you. Discipleship and evangelism. If it were up to Paul, he's already told us, he'd go on, and, uh, go on to heaven and be with Jesus. He's here for us. Lost and saved. The heart of this man is that when he looks at his people, when he meets them in heaven, they will be to him a joy and a crown. It's not a it's not a crown of uh, it's not a crown of uh, royalty, but it's a crown that an athlete would receive. It's a it's a wreath that in Paul's day, an athlete would run his race. And if he would win, if he would complete the race, he got this he got this wreath, this crown. His reward, Paul sees these people as his reward. The work that he's doing here on earth, he finds his reward in us. Isn't that good? And his prayer here in chapter 4, if you were to sum it up, is that they would stand firm. That word stand firm, it's a military term, actually. It means that you will hold your post no matter what gets fired at you. Isn't that good? You'll stand firm. Sure. And it carries with it this idea that you don't just stand there and you're an emotional wreck, but you stand firm, meaning you are content and you are at peace. Thus our theme for the chapter, that Christ is our peace. Well, he's going to address in verse 2 an idea that he's really been hitting around in the first three chapters. You remember this? It's the idea of unity. Now, with great tact, here before he ends the letter, he's going to be direct, but he's going to be very gracious to two women. Ladies, I don't know if you realize this, but back in Paul's day, 
uh, the women in the church, sometimes, I know it's odd, sometimes they would, they would butt heads and they would, they would be angry and bitter toward each other and they would fight and be catty stuff going on among, among the women in the church. I, I know that's odd, but it happened, okay? And in verse 2, he's going to call them out by name, but very, very softly and compassionately as you can when you call them by name. Verse 2, I urge Judea and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Now, I just want to point out something here. Don't miss how many times throughout this chapter he's going to say, in the Lord, in the Lord, in the Lord. Just know this, and we'll come back to this when we dive in more specific in some passages, that the key to a whole bunch of this stuff is that your focus stays on the Lord. And I'll say something about that even today, a little bit later. It's interesting, these, uh, these names. It could be a play on words. These could be... Uh, it could be that these aren't specific people. OK, it, it could be just a generalized way to address the issue of unity. Uh, probably is that they are specific people, that these are their actual names. But it's interesting what their names mean. Yudia means uh, a long journey or a, a good journey. OK, Syntyche means check this out. It means um, literally to hit against or in some translations, they would say uh, it's like an accident. You get this? You get a good long journey, and now you're going you're gonna to run into an accident. You're going to hit a wall. And it could be a play on words here. That this, is, this is what Paul sees as happening in this church. Now, verse 3 tells you what kind of ladies these are, okay? Because this we can't miss. Verse 3, indeed, true companion. Now, let me tell you this. True companion, that's also a proper name. Most of the translations, it doesn't translate as a proper name. It literally means uh, yoke fellow or true companion or true comrade. This guy's name might have meant comrade. OK, or he could just be referring to someone uh, not by name, but he's referring to this guy who he has a, a close camaraderie with. OK, and he's going to ask this guy to do something. He's going to ask them to help these women. I'll explain what that means in just a second. But look at the kind of women these are. These women have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. What was Paul's life spent on? The cause of the gospel. Discipleship and evangelism. This one thing, this one thing Paul gives his life to. He's not here primarily for his relationship with Christ. He's already told us he'd go on and be with Christ if he could. He's here for you, you, you. These ladies are partners with Paul in ministry. Look at what else he says about them. They have shared in my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement. Also, the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. These are true blue believers, and they're not just sideline Christians. They're in the game with Paul. He loves these women. They are dear to him. Not just because of who they are, but because of the evidence that their life has shown they have been in the game of the cause of the gospel. Uh, is it possible? Is it possible that well-intended believers passionate about the ministry, passionate about the gospel, passionate about their church, passionate about ministries can run headlong into each other and cause a wreck along the journey? Is that possible? It sure is. Does it happen? It sure does. Is there anything more devastating? Perhaps not in the church. You know, we always find people who who uh, aren't of the, the true believers who are kind of uh, they're uh, they're like leaven, Paul would say, causing trouble. And we got to get that out of the house. Right. Uh, there are cancerous tumors that sort of attach themselves to the church. And we've got to cut those things off. Right. What could be more dangerous 
is that we find well-intended Christians running head into each other. For a number of reasons, this happens. It happens on staffs, let me tell you, okay? It can happen. And Paul understands that it can't, it can't be the case. He directs them very graciously to live in harmony. Verse 2, literally, to have the same mind about you. Come together on this. Come together on this. Because if not, verse 3, it's going gonna, it's gonna to mess up what your life has been devoted to, just like mine. They've shared in my struggle for the cause of the gospel. They have been about evangelism and discipleship, much like Paul. Not only supporting him, but you get the idea that they're in the game as well. These are good people. These are good people. He asks this comrade in verse 3 to help them. Now, let me tell you what this word help means. Uh, it doesn't just mean that he wants to help them get through their uh, disunity. When Paul uses this word help in various number of places throughout Scripture uh, in the New Testament, we find that it, it's always seemed to be coupled around this idea of mission support and evangelism, frankly. It's the idea of help financially, help them along in ministry, share in their cause, okay? And so it's not just that this guy is the one who needs to come on and, and solve their issue. No, I believe they might be able to do that themselves, having, having the same mind in the Lord. This guy, Paul instructs in verse 3, it appears to help them along their way. These fellow workers, he says, true companion, Invest in these ladies. They've invested in me. It appears that they're missionaries right here. And Paul wants them to continue their work and he wants them to be helped. Now, verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. We've said this before because Paul's used this phrase a couple times in this book. That while this idea of rejoicing, it carries with it this, this idea of excitement right, and happiness. That's not it. That's not all. It has a deeper meaning that there is a dependence, a delight, a hope, a confidence, a firm foundation to be found. Where? In the Lord. In the Lord. He's not instructing them here to be excited, just to be excited for the sake of excitement. In the context here, this, this verse seems to mean that the, the church at Philippi will find their joy, their delight, their hope, chapter 4, their peace, okay? Because this word rejoice carries with it the idea that you find your peace. Where? In the Lord, specifically in context here, in, in the realm of missions, support, evangelism, discipleship, etc. So when he says, to the church now, after he's spoken to these ladies directly, he's spoken to the true companion directly. He, it's as if Paul turns to the church and says, listen, rejoice in the Lord. Uh, I think Paul understands something here. I think he's trying to convey what uh, many pastors have found out. I've seen this happen. That when individuals find themselves getting into the game of the cause of the gospel sharing the good news of Christ. There is a depth of joy, excitement, peace, rest, happiness, whatever you want to call it. There is a depth to that rejoicing that can be found no other place. I see it happen. 
I've seen it happen with some of you who have learned to share the gospel, to get in the game, so to speak, to be in, uh, in the cause of the gospel, fellow workers. And I've seen you do it, and it's, it's like your world just completes itself. It's like nothing else has ever brought the depth of joy and happiness that that touch with the eternal in that moment of sharing the gospel and telling somebody about the grace and the mercy of God. There's nothing better. And those of you who have done that, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, Preston and I, I'll, I'll confess to you, I've told you this before, that, uh, well, I'll confess for me, Preston can confess for himself. Uh, but I'll implicate him at least. Uh, it wasn't until, frankly, just a couple years ago, about three years ago, that, that I really uh, understood the joy that comes in getting involved in the cause of the gospel, namely evangelism. Um, and let me tell you what happened when I did. Uh, Preston and I, about the same time, started sharing the gospel very directly, very intentionally with men and women in the street. We were working outside of the church uh, a good bit at the time. And I think, uh, you know, praise God, he, he had that. He had that plan for us. It wasn't just because we didn't have the money to support our staff. I think he had us out there for a reason. And one of the reasons was so that we could be around the world a lot. And we could learn ourselves to share the gospel so that one day when we stand up here and we're telling you to share the gospel, it's not that we haven't already done it. Okay? But here's what happened. Uh, we would be on the job. We'd be at different job sites. Uh, and uh, uh, I'd share the gospel with some guy. And I'd call Preston or I'd call Kimberly. And I'd be like, listen, hey, I just, I just shared the gospel with this dude. This is what happened. This is what he said. It was awesome. He started crying and he received Christ. Or uh, I found these three guys in Subway at lunch and I shared with them. And literally for months it went on that we would call back and forth and just interrupt each other. Like, dude, pray for this guy because I just shared with him. And it, it, sometimes it was five and six people in a day. And finally, I just, it just got to a point where we're like, man, we can't keep calling each other. Because it, it, but what I sensed was in myself and what I sensed in him and what I sensed in those of you who are doing this is this depth of joy, I think, that Paul alludes to here. Rejoice in the Lord. Find your joy, your contentment. There is a peace that, that only those who do the verse 3 know. All right, let's keep going. Verse 5, he's going to say that... Um, Unless we have a proper attitude, we, we can't we can't be committed or as effective in the cause as we would like. Verse five, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. That word gentle gentle literally means reasonable. Be reasonable with each other. Be reasonable in your spirit with all men that you encounter. It has the idea of being benevolent, being kind, being gracious, being gentle. You know, I've told you guys before, uh, some of you may remember me telling you about the uh, porcupines in the north in the winter. You heard this? Uh, there's what we call the dance of the porcupines. And uh, every year when uh, the porcupines realize that it's getting cold out, um, I've not seen this happen, but I've been told, porcupines, they, they, they know that in order to survive the dead of the winter, they've got to huddle together. All right. Are, are some of you getting the picture of what this might look like now? Porcupines having to huddle together for warmth to survive. Now, what do you think happens when a couple of porcupines start trying to nestle in and cuddle in close? Well, you get what they call the dance of the porcupines and they start jumping around and they try and get close and they jump back because they poke each other. Right. It's similar in the church. 
that we need each other. We need to be close. We need the warmth of spirit with our brothers and sisters, but, but we're a little prickly sometimes. What the gospel requires, what the cause of the gospel requires, verse 5, Paul say, is more, more rabbit fur. It's in the context, verse 5, the Lord is near. That phrase is used several times throughout Scripture. I'll let you look them up. James 5, 8, and 9 is one of those occurrences. Many of the times that that phrase is used, it's in the context of uh, incumbent judgment, that God is watching church and there will be a judgment for those of us who don't let a gentle spirit be known to all men it's the idea of the father is near he is at the door he is watching well verse six how do we live this life paul what do we do when uh, things start falling in around us verse six he's going to say be anxious for nothing that word anxious, it, it literally means to, uh, to be scattered in all directions or to move in all directions. Now, try and get a picture of what you know of an anxious person and put that in there with it and, and get a picture of who that person looks like. It's a, it's a scattered person, someone who's going in all directions looking for everything or anything that might be able to potentially help their situation. That's an anxious person. He's everywhere. Okay. Paul says, don't be like that. Don't be anxious. Don't run everywhere for your peace. Here's what you do. Verse six. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. What do we do? Instead of being scattered, he draws us to focus. In the Lord, we focus through prayer. What all do we pray about? We pray about all things, everything. Bring it all to God. Don't worry about how small you think it is. Uh, one of his parishioners asked G. Campbell Morgan one time, uh, Pastor, uh, what do you think God thinks about you know, my small stuff? Can, can I bring my small stuff to God? Can, should I pray about this, this little stuff? And he, he just looked at her and he says, Ma'am, what makes you think your big stuff is big stuff? Can I get that? Okay. What makes you think your big stuff is big stuff? Mm, thank you. Amen. Some of you wives explain that to your husband later. We pray about all things. And then he says with supplication, that's the idea of being specific. Don't just run through your list. Give God your specific heartfelt needs. And we do it with an attitude of what? Of thanksgiving. It's the idea that we come to God and we give him everything we have to give him. We pray specifically. We pray with passion. But we pray with an attitude of expectancy, thanking God in the meantime, in the prayer, thanking God. Not only does he know best, but he will work out best for us. Not only does he know best, but he wants the best for us. And in the meantime, we thank him for that. That's the attitude we have. And look at what happens. Verse 7. We do that and the peace of God. Now, we all as believers have peace with God, but that's not what Paul says here. Right. You get that as a believer, as you are in Christ, you have peace with God via the cross that's been settled. It's done. Do we all have peace of God? No, we don't. No, we don't. Is it available? It sure is. Do we claim it? 
Not all the time. And the peace of God, which, and he's going to describe it here, and Preston alluded to this earlier, and Paul's alluded to it throughout the whole book. This peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, or it circumvents a human mind. It'll be ours. Look at what he says. It will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. You know, when Paul wrote this, he was literally in prison, chained to a Roman guard, a Roman centurion. Many scholars think that Paul has this in mind as he's writing this, that this peace that comes from God, that is available to us as we pray, as we thank him, God will provide this peace and it will be like this guard that Paul is chained to. This guard was chained to Paul not only to keep Paul from departing, but to protect Paul in the, in the meantime before he went to trial. I think that's what he has the idea of here. That God now stands over him. Envelopes him. Guards our very heart and our mind in Christ Jesus. Verse 8. Finally, brethren, that's what God will do. Now he's going to tell us what we do. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. And if you were to draw a circle around these things and you were to uh, connect it to something, a phrase earlier, it would be verse 6, be anxious for nothing. Don't be scattered about, worried about all these different things. He says, draw your focus in. Here's where you place your heart and your mind. Whatever's true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, good repute, excellent, worthy of praise. Dwell, abide, live, remain literally in and on these things. In verse 9, he says, I'm... I'm an example of this. Now, this takes audacity right here. Watch this. Verse 9, Paul says, These things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Now, you practice these things yourself. Let me just tell you. uh, You can't talk about the peace of God and be faking it when you got a life that's like Paul's. Okay? He's already told us. I've mentioned this a couple times. That throughout the book, this guy, humanly speaking, it's like he's off his rocker. Chapter 1, you remember what he said? He says, you know what, I know I'm here in jail, but I kind of figured this is working out for the best for the kingdom. That's strange, okay? Chapter 2, you remember what he said? For me to live is Christ and die is gain. I'm here for you. That's strange. To see even his death for the cause of the gospel in a positive light. Chapter 3, he says, you know what, all this positive stuff, all this great stuff that I've gained... Uh, you know, my status, this power uh, among my peers, the respect, etc. He said, I, I really count it all as rubbish. I count it as loss compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing him, him, and being found in him. Paul lost it all. He says, you know what? Losing it was actually for the best. It's odd. Some of you found yourself, as Preston mentioned earlier, in situations where things around you are not ideal. Whether it's with your job, whether it's with your marriage, whether it's with 
your children, whether it's your home overall, whatever it is, there is available a peace that comes from God, which, as Preston said earlier, uh, you only get it if you've experienced it. It, it. You have to be initiated in this thing to understand what Paul means here. And it seems ridiculous from the people on the outside when they watch us and uh, you watch a Christian family who loses a child through some unfortunate accident. And you see them mourn, but they mourn with hope. And, and the world looks at them and they, and they look at them. Something's not right. Something's off. It's not quite understood. It's understood by the saints, though. These things you've learned and you've received, you've heard and seen in me, you practice these things. And look at what he says at the end of verse 9. And the God of peace will be with you. If you were to circle that, God of peace, and connect it back a couple verses earlier, what would it correlate to? The peace of God. Now here's what he does. He ups the ante a little bit. Not only will you receive a peace from God, the peace of God. Check this out. He says, I'll do you one better. You're going to get God himself. God with us. Emmanuel. He will be, most assuredly, end of verse 9, He will be with you. It's one thing to have peace from God and peace with God. But now Paul says, you've got God Himself with you. How did Paul make it through everything he's made it through? God is with him. He rejoices in the Lord. That's the only way you make it through. That's where you get a joy and a peace that passes all understanding, any comprehension. Doesn't make any sense. 10 through 13, he's going to explain this. He's going to unpack it a little bit. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly. Again, in the Lord. His confidence, his joy is in the Lord. Why? On this occasion, he says, that now at last you, the Philippian church, have revived your concern for me. Their concern was what? That they sent him money. They sent him uh, things that he needed. They met his needs. Okay? So he says, I'm praising God. I'm more confident. I'm more rested. I'm more at peace in the Lord because of what you've done. What have you done? You met my needs financially. Look at what he says here. You were concerned for me before, but you had lacked opportunity. Their heart had always been there. And he's going to tell us that a little later. Their heart has always been there. They just hadn't had opportunity. Now they had an opportunity. They sent him Epaphroditus. He brings the things that they need, and uh, he's able to meet it. And Paul says, he says, my confidence in the Lord is, is increased because of what you've done. And then he's going to qualify what he means here. Look at what he says here in verse 12, uh, 11. Not that I speak from want, brethren. And, he, and he's going to back up here and he's going to say, now let me be clear about this. I am so glad that you met my needs. Praise God. I rejoice in the Lord. That you met my needs financially. But let's be clear. I'm not sitting around here wringing my hands wondering where my next meal is going to come from. I'm not sitting around here wondering if God's ever going to show up. Where did God go? Did he leave me? What's God up to? No, Paul says, let's be clear. I'm not, I'm not rejoicing in what you've done because I'm speaking out of want. No. Verse 11. For I have learned... And that word learned here, he's going to mention a couple times. It's the word for disciple. God has discipled him in something. 
says, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. Verse 12, I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret. Uh, Incidentally, this is where Oprah gets the idea of the secret. Right here, Philippians chapter 4. I'm just kidding. It's not true. I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both having abundance and suffering need. Now stop right there. The emphasis Paul makes here is, listen, uh, I I rejoice in the Lord that you met my needs here. Financially, you you met a great need. Praise God. Uh, You you wanted to do it for a long time. Now you've been able to do it. But let me be clear here. It's It's not really that I needed you to do that. Because here's the deal. God has taught me something. I've learned something. And what I've learned is contentment. In the next verse, he calls it, I've learned the secret. How does he learn this secret? What school is he sent to to learn this contentment, this secret, to balance? That word contentment literally means uh, self-sufficient. It's not the idea that he's self-sufficient from God, but he's self-sufficient from any outside thing that, that he might need to rest Everything Paul needs to rest is in him, namely the Lord in him. Okay, it's the idea that he doesn't need the outside things. He thanks God for what they sent, but he doesn't necessarily need it. What school does Paul go to to learn these things? Uh, We might call it the school of hard knocks. And although he mentions prosperity, although he mentions having uh, much, the emphasis through these verses is want. Verse 11, verse 12, humble means hungry suffering need down in 14 he's going to call it affliction paul says you know how i've learned this i've been there i've been there uh how do you teach your kids to learn patience how do you teach your kids to really learn anything well you put them in a position to learn you you put them in a position to learn um does god teach his children by spoiling them let me put it another way is it biblical that god wants all of his children to be rich all of the time and to have every one of their needs met all the time no it's not in fact that's one of the great heresies of the last couple centuries is that uh is the pockets of our churches saying that god would have you In perfect peace, meaning that he'll meet all of your needs all of the time. Is that biblical? Paul say, no way, man. That's not biblical. In fact, he said, I've learned this secret. I've learned contentment. I'll tell you how I've learned it. I've learned it through the school of hard knocks. I've learned it by being without. The worst thing you can do is to spoil your kids. Inheritance gained quickly will not be blessed in the end. Uh, Tom Brokoff wrote a book. Some of you read this called uh, The Greatest. Is it The Greatest Generation? Yeah, The Greatest Generation. You know why he says they are the greatest generation? He says they're the greatest generation because of the Depression and World War. Now you think about that. Paul says, I've learned. I've learned. And in verse 13, you get a famous verse. But now you're going to understand what it means in context. I can do all things. I can negotiate even the worst, Paul might say. 
I can deal with the negative, the rock bottom, the pit. I can do all things. This is what this means. I can do all things. Emphasis on even the worst things. How? Through him, that's Christ, who is there to strengthen me. All right, let's keep going here. Nevertheless, verse 14, he's going to go back to their gift. Nevertheless, you have done well. Christians, do we give to the cause of the gospel? Yes, we do. Is it a part of your discipleship? Is it a part of your education, your learning? Yes, it is. Do we give to the cause? We better. Paul says, you have done well to be the hands of Christ in my need. Okay? You've done well to share with me in my affliction. 15. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, Macedonia is the region that Philippi is in, so after I left you there in Philippi, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. This is a pretty good compliment right here. You're a giving church. You've done well to open up your wallet. Well, verse 16, the next church that uh, Paul went to after Philippi was Thessalonica. He says, for even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once to meet my needs. Remember how long I told you we think Paul was in Thessalonica? About three weeks. It's not nearby. There is no FedEx. There is no online bank transfers. Okay? For them to send gifts to him in a three-week period more than once. Point is, it took great ambition and effort and love for the cause. Paul says, you've done well. He's going to qualify it once again. Verse 17, not that I seek the gift itself. Let's be clear. Not that I seek the gift itself. But look at what Paul knows. The end of verse 17, he says, I seek for the profit. It's great accounting language here. I seek for the profit which increases to your account. Where is your account? It's in heaven. Is it true that when you make deposits here on earth, when you open your wallet and you give to the cause of the gospel, that God records it in heaven? Yes, it is. Preston mentioned uh, Friday night in our uh, Valentine's banquet. People came together. Uh, let me just say it was, it was awesome. I was blown away. And, and a lot of times I'll just say, you guys did a great job, et cetera, just because that's something I have to say. But let me just say, <laughs> it was... I wasn't supposed to say that out loud. It was awesome, man. It was great. And people came together and they gave 50 bucks. And we got 50 bucks worth of a meal. I'll just tell you that. Okay? You go out to any restaurant, you got 50 bucks worth of meal. Got to watch a movie and all the ladies cried and repented as they should. And, and it was good, man. And Preston said something and it struck me. And I, and I, I thought of this passage automatically. He said, you know what? We, we, you guys are giving so that we can go on this mission trip. And he said, you know what? Uh, you get just as much as you who give as us who go. Uh, there is a record. There is a record kept by God to your account. Remember, remember this language Paul used in chapter 3? All the things that were gains and loss, profits, profits and losses in his list in chapter 3? He comes back to that. That theme. And he says, you know what? Mark one down on the profit side for you. When you take up the cause and you give 
You did well. How are we doing? Well, we get another promise here. Verse 18, But I have received everything in full, and I have an abundance, and I am amply supplied. And the point here is not that they just met his needs, but he's giving glory to God that all his needs are being met. Having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent. Now look at what he says. Their offering, their support, their help is in the eyes of God. It is a priestly offering. And that is, a, that is an awesome picture. In the New Testament, there are five or six ways that you can bring an offering as a priest brought an offering in the Old Testament. We're going to come back in a few weeks and I'm going to give you those different ways that you bring offerings. He says, end of verse 18, what you have sent was a fragrant aroma and an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. That's the picture of the sacrificial altar. He says, when you open up your wallet and you lay that money down for someone else, for the cause, when you send these people out, when you support the church, when you do this stuff, he said, let me tell you what it is. He said, you're like a priest going into the Holy of Holies and you are offering a fragrant aroma of worship before God. It is an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing unto God. Did you know that that's what you do when you drop your money in that box back there? I hope so. One of the reasons that we put the box back there, we thought about putting it right up here so that you could come at some point during worship and you would be moved by your heart and you would give unto the Lord. Understanding that it is your worship. You act as priests when you open that thing which is so dear to us humans. That makes us so anxious and scattered about. Well, he says, friends, that's worship. And we get a promise in verse 19. Check this out. Philippians, my God will supply how many of your needs? All your needs according to what? His riches in glory. Once again, in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. And ever and ever. Amen. And he sends some greetings. How many ways can we count that Christ is our peace? He's the peace between individuals. He's the peace when our heart is anxious. He's the peace when we give to the cause. He's our peace when uh, we when our worlds are falling down around us. He's our peace when we give when we don't know where we're going to get. Can I show you one more verse? Uh, Look at Luke 6, real quick. Verse 38. Luke 6, 38. One verse. Give, and it will be given to you. I hope that promise, after Paul has unfolded it, in his words to the Philippians, means a little more to you. But look at what it says here. Look at the heart of God towards us. Give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure. Now the picture here is uh, is a woman in the household going to the market with a basket to get to get the family's grain. All right. And you would go and they would fill up your basket. All right. 
But look at what it says we get from God. They will pour into your lap a good measure. And here's what this good measure looks like. It will be pressed down, shaken together, and running over. How do you get as much as possible into your basket? You jam that stuff down in there. You shake it up trying to get it to settle. And they, you, you get them to pour it until it's just overflowing. Christ says that, that, that's the heart of God. That's the heart of God. Let's pray. There is a peace that um, is only known by experience. And it comes in our knowledge of who our God is. Preston would tell you that one of his favorite quotes is by a guy named A.W. Tozer. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, he said this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. To have your joy in the Lord, to have your hope, your confidence, your delight, your peace, your rest in the Lord, you've got to know who the Lord is. What's your picture of your God? He went on to say this. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most pretentious fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that compose the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Just as her most significant message is what she says about him or actually leaves unsaid sometimes for her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. She can never escape the self-disclosure of her witness concerning God. Were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question? What comes into your mind when you think about God? He says, we might aptly predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. Our spiritual stability. Chapter 4, verse 1. Our ability to stand firm is directly related to what we think about our God. To the promises we know of our God. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ. And I count all things lost to the surpassing value of knowing him. Do you know him? Do you know him? Do you know him? Lord, we, we leave here, I pray, stronger in our stance, firmer in our resolve, in the Lord. Might we leave here with a renewed peace that you can bring peace at any point in our life. It's a peace that uh, may not be explainable. And it comes by uh, initiation through pain often. For those of us who know it, Father, we thank you for it. 
Would you remind us of it often? For those who don't know it, Father, I pray they wouldn't leave this place. If they have not peace with you, they have no hope of having you, the God of our peace. So, Lord, would you would you prompt their heart to make peace with their creator? If that's you, would you uh, not leave today without grabbing Preston or I before you leave? We'd love to. We'd love to extend the grace and the peace that God has extended to us. That would be our great joy. That would be our great joy. Amen. Why don't you stand with me? I want to introduce you to a couple. Jimmy and Stephanie Vandegrift. And their chillins. Come on up, guys. They've been with us for some time, serving in a variety of ways. Jonah, Haley, and Hunter. And uh, they have moved all the way from the other side of our world, California. Where is it? What's the name of the place? The Cuca Rancho, Rancho Cucamonga. Huh? Missionaries to the East Coast. How about that? Uh, they want to join our fellowship. And as I always say, that uh, when God adds to our number, he, he's, he is... Uh, it's all right, man. You can play the drums. He is adding to our tapestry. Right? He's adding to our tapestry. A new color, a new shade, a new hue of God's family. And we're going to be blessed by them. I, I pray that you would be a blessing to them, all right? We're going to pray for them, and we're going to be dismissed. And uh, you'll have a great week in the Lord. Father, we, uh, we thank you for bringing yet another family whose hunger is for you, whose joy is in the Lord, whose peace, whose rest, whose life is committed to one thing, and that is you. And Lord, uh, their transition has not been an easy one. So Lord, I pray as their pastor that you would continue to give them the peace they need as they wait on you. As they wait on you. Lord, I pray as a church we would surround them, lift them up, undergird them, be a blessing to them as they are a blessing to us. Lord, we lock arms with them in the cause of the gospel. We love you, Lord. And we thank you for uh, being our peace. For it's in Christ's name we pray, who is our cornerstone. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. Have a great week.